Curious Conversations About Sex is brought to you by Curious Creatures, who run a variety of workshops on self-development and sexuality in Australia. My name is Rog. I wrote a book, and I'm going to read some of it to you today. It's got nothing to do with sex, but it's on a topic I know many of you find interesting. It's called Success for Slackers, and it's about how to come up with a business or a role that's good for you, good for the people around you, and good for whatever planet you happen to be on. There's already a lot of business advice or coaching out there built around the idea of getting sharper at your game, getting more competitive, and getting more economically aggressive. I'm wanting to take a slightly different approach. I'm proposing that if you're thinking about starting a business, or even just moving towards your dream career, you should start first and foremost with your ethics and your body. You should work out what you're capable of and then not spend the entire rest of your career trying to overcome that or get around it. You should listen to your body and especially its limitations. Uh, Once you've done that, the next thing you need to listen to is your ethics. I'm going to read a few key chapters about this, but the idea is simple. If you choose something to do that you are passionate about and that you believe in, It's going to bring you far more joy than something you're only doing because it makes economic sense. There's nothing wrong with a good business plan, and indeed, the book explores some details around how to do that, but that's just not enough to get you through the difficult times, nor is it enough to make you happy. And that's to say nothing about how the world around you feels about whatever it is that you're doing and the impact it has on them. So, success for slackers. It's not about slacking off. It's about doing something good for you, good for the world around you, and not killing yourself in the process. I'm going to read you some chapters, uh, which will include some of the background attitude and ethics stuff, and some of the pragmatic and specific tools. The whole book, if you're curious, is $7 on Amazon. Uh, There's a link in the show notes and also on the Curious Creatures website, or you could just do a search on Amazon for Success for Slackers. Next chapter. Money doesn't buy you love or happiness. So seriously, for real, this time, stop focusing on it. Regarding happiness, don't take my word for it. Do some research. Plenty has been done and is published. What you'll find as you read it is that money and happiness are correlated up until you get out of poverty. After that, there's only the slightest increase in happiness, even over hundreds of thousands of dollars of increased income. If ever there was something that showed we're illogical creatures, it's this delusional tendency to think that money will buy us happiness. Get over it. As far as the idea that money can buy you love is concerned, if someone falls for you because of your money, that's not going to end well. It's as fraught as having someone fall for you because they like your body. You don't want to be wanted for either of those things. You want someone that loves you for who you are, the way your mind works, and the way you interact with them. Even the things that money can buy for a relationship, like holidays to go on together, or nice new cars to the to ferry the relationship around in, they're all instantly ruined by a rotten relationship. 
Conversely, the simplest and cheapest things in the world, like walking through a park or swapping a massage, are made into gold by a golden relationship. Next chapter. An ethical business is better for you and everyone else. Why is it better for you? Because you've got to live with yourself, and you're the only person that can answer the great lofty questions of what you're doing here and what the purpose of it all is. If you're running an ethically driven business, you've already got a partial or full answer to this question. So your business isn't just something you do to get by while working out what the meaning of life is. To a degree, it is the meaning of life. This is vastly different from a business that on some fundamental level you're uncomfortable with and where you've got to sit with the fact that you're a little uncomfortable with what you're doing in the world. Also, it's going to make you a much, much better salesperson if you're springing from an ethical starting point. The less you believe in something, the harder it is to sell it. If you really believe in something, your passion will be infectious. Finally, There's a correlation between happiness and the sense that you're doing something good for the world. In fact, to the extent that the pursuit of happiness can be tied to any one single act, happiness researchers are consistently saying that having the sense that you're helping others is that one thing that's likely to make you happier. And please contrast this with the relatively short-term happiness boost that comes from money alone. Remember, It's been shown that winning a lottery or getting other similar payouts only measurably increases happiness for a matter of weeks or even days. Why is an ethical business better for everyone else? The answer to this is pretty obvious. I've got to live with you. (laughs) We share a planet, so however remote the connection might be, what you do has an impact on me. And of course, there's the other 7 billion folks that will all benefit from your ethical practices and who have something else to lose if you're from your less than ethical practices. You can make the world a better place simply through the type of business you run and the way you run it. Let's take real estate as an example. Although not all real estate agents behave this way, the general model is to promise buyers you'll get them the lowest price, while promising sellers you'll get them the highest one. Obviously, both can't be true, and the only way to reconcile this difference is with lies. That's not ultimately going to feel good within yourself, because somewhere in there, you're aware of what you're doing to at least one of the parties you're dealing with. It's also not going to feel all that great to the people involved when they realise they've been lied to. Story about ethical real estate. I knew someone that had a background in real estate, and they struggled with the above dilemma a lot. After, let's say, a midlife crisis, they decided they wanted to do something more in line with their ethics, but at the same time, it seemed crazy to let go of the considerable skills and connections they had from their decades in real estate. They didn't want to leave the sector entirely. So they started spending 5% of their time, see later in this book for details about what that figure refers to, on researching sustainable development, design and construction. They reached out to people that they knew had development money and formed alliances with green-leaning architects. One thing led to another, and although it took some time, they launched and sold a globally award-winning sustainable housing development. It felt superb for them, despite the fact that 
what they did wasn't always a walk in the park. It was great for the people that bought into the development, and obviously it was a lot better for the world as a whole. So that's the end of that story. Simply being madly passionate about your business, even if it's not particularly ethically driven, may be enough to motivate you and get you through the tricky times. However, it's better to have a business that you're passionate about and that at least one person, like you, also ethically believes in. But right at the top of the pile is to have a business that you're madly passionate about and that most of the rest of the world would agree is objectively ethically driven. To be in that position is to be almost unshakable. Every time one of us moves more in the direction of long-term and sustainable thinking, we raise the bar just a little bit. The unethical jobs and businesses look gradually less attractive as people compete instead for better lives and better ways of doing things. Next chapter. Apply the scientific method of experimentation to every decision you make. In this context, the part of the scientific method that I'm referring to is the process of having an idea or an hypothesis about something, then setting about creating an experiment to see whether the idea stacks up or not. A true scientist doesn't really care about the outcome of a given experiment. Regardless of whether it goes as planned, they realise that either way, they get more information, and information is the only commodity they really care about. You'll see good counsellors and coaches doing the same thing. They'll ask you questions or make suggestions, but they shouldn't be attached to whether they're right or wrong with whatever they were guessing at. They're just fishing around for more information, and they get that information regardless. When we apply this approach to your business, most decisions you need to make can be reframed as experiments you're going to run. They're either going to work or not, but either way, you get more information. If they don't work the way you might have hoped, there's no need to take it personally or think of yourself or your decision-making as a failure. For the most part, there's no way we can predict the outcome of a decision ahead of time. All we can do is set up the experiment as best we know how given the information we have available at the time and then put it into play. The wise person is not the one that gets those experiments right the whole time. No such person exists. The wise person is the one who objectively sits back and assesses how the experiment is going, and who doesn't have unreasonable attachments to staying with a plan that isn't working, often referred to as the sunk cost fallacy, or throwing good money after bad. The only thing better than a well-made plan is the ability to change that plan. When you're making a business decision... Occasionally things come up where you need to make a major commitment where it's not easy to softly and gently experiment first. Taking on a 10-year commercial lease might be an example, uh, and so might be letting go of a key member of staff or a business partner. These are all things that are hard to undo if you decide that the experiment isn't playing out as you'd hoped. However, the spirit of experimentation can still influence those decisions. To go with the above examples, perhaps you can look for an alternative commercial lease where you can break the terms down into a shorter series of options and where the fit-out costs will be less of a commitment. If you have to let go of a member of staff, perhaps you can do so in a way that makes it easier to reverse the decision should you need to, like 
getting the outgoing staff to write a comprehensive manual in case the role is re-established, or being transparent with them about the fact that, in all honesty, you don't know that finishing up their role is the best option or the one that you're ultimately going to stay with, but one that you need to try out for now. Perhaps that will leave the door open to a future re-engagement. Even if you do make a major decision that's hard to reverse, it's still a lot easier on your psychology if you can just chalk it up as another successful part of the scientific method in that you now know more than you knew before and are in a stronger position to make the next experiment, which will obviously be different to the one you've just made. This is far more enjoyable and far more sustainable than moping around for six months telling yourself that you're no good at business. My businesses, especially the one I'm running at the moment, is nothing more than a rolling series of experiments. My key member of staff and I have so thoroughly embraced this philosophy that we just don't take decisions all that seriously. Actually, that's not strictly true. We take them seriously and we think and talk them all through very seriously, but there's no sense that we're committing to something forever. Almost every decision we make ends with, until we decide otherwise, which creates a nice sense of lightness and freedom. And in general, there's not a huge sense of failure when things don't work out. We prefer an almost amused attitude of laughing at ourselves. Well, now we know. Let's not do that again. I would also add that most of my experiments fail. The ones that don't fail continue to become an ongoing part of the business. The ones that do fail generally get rejigged until they eventually work or simply get dropped completely. I want to go on record. I've been successfully self-employed most of my life and it's not because I get things right. I get things wrong absolutely constantly, but I generally don't lose time kicking myself about it. I'm telling you this so that you don't drop out the first time something doesn't go as you hoped. You are going to fail all over the place, all of the time. That's what business and a lot of management roles is all about. Get out there and start failing, my friend. Next chapter. Being able to work flexibly and on something you love will make you way happier than a high income. Look it up. Tons of research has been done on this topic, and the results are clear. Flexible, reasonable, and autonomous work hours will make you much happier than a higher income. And we've already covered how doing something you love for a lower income is a much surer path to happiness than doing something you don't love for more money, assuming you're at least a little bit above the poverty line. Seriously, look it up. It's one of those secrets in plain sight that we we all should be paying more attention to. Work less often. Work whenever you want. Work as hard or not hard as is right for you. Stop thinking that when you eventually get to that next financial goal, you'll be happy. Next chapter. Be a hedonist. Fully, deeply, profoundly. To be a hedonist is to pursue things that make you happy and things that are pleasurable. People often think of hedonism as being about giving into vices and short-term satisfactions like alcohol, sex, food, massages and the like. Personally, I think all of these things are fantastic if they're a positive influence on your life. Not only do I think you should pursue hedonism and use your flexible self-employment situation to serve your hedonism, 
such as leaving work at 11am to get a spontaneous massage or whatever. But I think you should go so, so much further. I think you should make hedonism your main spiritual practice, your way of being in the world. If you look deeply at the question of what makes you happy, yes, there are a bunch of short-term vices that have short-term effects, and then there's a deeper level of life satisfaction and happiness. The psychology and social sciences are getting pretty good now at working out what's likely to make us happy. And what they're finding is that these things are the most guaranteed paths to happiness. Point one, doing something for someone other than yourself. Point two, doing something with your life that is good for the community and the world. And point three, being able to answer the question, what are you here for and are you making good use of the privilege of being alive? You may notice that there's a certain alignment between these psychological findings and what I'm proposing in this book. You could say, with some accuracy, that my approach to business is very much built on these findings, that a deep and profound commitment to hedonism and being happy is at the core of what motivates me. We all face those moments in life where we've got a choice between something that is known and safe, but possibly not all that interesting or inspiring, and something that is less known, uh, a little scary, but that is also exciting, so exciting that we can't put it out of our heads. My own journey with chronic fatigue syndrome and depression forced me to look at these questions more than I otherwise might have, but either way, they're a core part of the human condition. Hedonism is not about selfishly pursuing whatever you want in the moment without regard to your future self or to those around you. It's quite the opposite. It's about working out what's going to be good for the people around you because that's going to feel spectacular. I feel that as a species, we got lucky and hit the jackpot. What's good for the tribe and the world is also good for us as individuals thanks to the reward mechanism of happiness. You don't need to stare down those decisions about what you're going to do with your life and make rash life changes, although sometimes there is a place for that. Uh, I'm more of a fan of gradually and sustainably moving towards the things that are less known, more exciting, and better for the world. To do that requires a shift in mindset, which is what we've been so far discussing, the values and ethics that will support better decisions for you and those around you. It also requires a bunch of specific and pragmatic tools and skills, and that's what we're going to dive into during part two, the pragmatics. Hey there, listener. I'd like to make you a little proposal. I love making this podcast for free because it helps me spread the word about sex positivity. But I could use your help in spreading the word just by sharing this episode if that's not too absurd. For every 10 stories that you listen to, please recommend it to someone that might like it too. (laughs) This is not a real contract, for you got no say. I would if I could frame it some other way. And if sharing's not for you, that's fine. There's nothing to do. Please listen without guilt to this podcast I built. Next chapter. Money doesn't make you nice. Actually, it's quite the opposite. This is not my quote, but it's a good one. 
If you were a bit of a cusshead before you had money, then you'll be a massive cusshead after you get money. Money gives you the option to avoiding taking responsibility for yourself. You can avoid challenging situations, and to a degree, you can buy your way out of problems. You can effectively use a credit card to skip over your self-development work and skip the pain of listening to people that have feedback that you really need to hear. What people look for in friends and partners is someone who's good to the core, someone who cares about other people, knows themselves well, and is reliable and congruent. The process of gaining money will touch on some of those skills because sometimes you need to show good self-development and personal skills to win sales. But earning money is just about the most inefficient way of becoming a good person. And unfortunately, it often makes us worse people. When we set about earning money, especially when it's the money we're primarily after, rather than seeing money as a secondary byproduct of the pursuit of our dreams, we often have to learn the exact opposite of being a nice person. We have to learn that we are more important than everyone else and that it's okay to manipulate other people to get the sale we want and to be selfish about it. There are a lot of business coaches out there creating wealth but destroying self-worth. Next chapter. Is this idea viable? As a single question, this is overwhelming broken down into three sub-questions, it's a lot easier. These three questions are not mine to take credit for. I reproduce them because I think they are brilliant in their ability to predict your success or otherwise. You don't have to use these three questions. In fact, elsewhere, I've espoused the benefit of just doing whatever motivates you and trusting that the rest will unfold. I think there's a lot of truth in that, but you can couple that passion-driven approach with the honest self-reflection and market consideration that these three questions require. Uh, well, and if you do, then you're as close to a guarantee of success as you can get. So question one, is there a market? This question alone is a whole area of study, and I'm not pretending to be expert at it. But the sorts of things I think about when trying to work out if there's a viable market for whatever kooky or cool idea I've come up with are along the lines of some dot points. First dot point, who is the person or groups of people that is likely to want to buy this product or service? Next dot point, is it a pre-existing marketplace with defined financial exchanges or are you creating something new? Next dot point, if it's a pre-existing marketplace, is there a legitimate gap into which you can step? Do you offer something that isn't already offered? Can you get this message to the people that need to hear it? Are you able to collaborate with existing players, or will it be more like competing? And if you're going to have to compete, how plausible is that, and how's that going to feel? Next dot point. If you are creating a market anew, how will you find people and convince them of your worth? How will you convince people that they need something that they're not even currently aware of? Next dot point, what words and language does your market audience use to think about your offering? Next dot point, what problem are they aware of for which you are a solution? Next dot point, 
What is the potential size of the market and what percentage of that do you realistically think you can win? Next dot point, what are your margins? How much is it going to cost you to provide your product and service and how does that relate to what you think your market will pay? Is the difference between the two enough to sustain you and your business? Uh, While assessing this, be realistic about how accurate your budgeting normally is. If you're good at it and if you have a track record of getting budgeting right, then rely on it. If you're new to the art of budgeting or if you have a track record of getting things wrong, then factor this into your thinking and get help if you need it. This is a time when coaches can be gold. And last dot point, is the marketing requirement of reaching your audience going to consume the core idea and the pleasure you get from it? Often, your market research will consist of bribing your friends for their opinion with wine, which, to be fair, is a time-honoured system probably at the start of most successful businesses. The trick here is to be clear with your friends as to what kind of feedback you need. Because most people are nice, and most people will assume you need support rather than criticism, they will often tell you what they think you need to hear to get through to the next level. There's definitely a place for this. In Edward de Bono's HATS model, this is what's called the white hat mode, where all you're trying to do is be positive and see the good in an idea. Uh, this is an important stage, but it influences your, if it influences your early stage thinking too much, it's dangerous. What you want to do is put your friends into black hat mode, at least for part of the time. Ask them, what are the reasons why this idea won't work? Or, if you were to gossip negatively about this with a friend, what would you say? Give them explicit permission and encouragement to be honest and frank with you, and reward them for challenging you. If you can't take strong or negative feedback at this level, you're going to struggle when it comes from staff or clients or a loan provider or whoever. All the more reason to practice those skills now with your friends. Question two. Do you love the idea enough? Is the idea sufficiently aligned with your ethics and or something that you love enough to get you through the hard times, such as the beginning, where there is generally lots of work and no income? If someone else is out there with a similar idea to you, but who has some stronger internal drive for the idea, then if everything else is equal, they will be more successful and will perhaps eventually put you out of business. You can push past a weak response to this question with grit and determination, but just be aware that you're exposed. And question three, do you have the skills? It is not enough to just love the business idea. You, personally, have to have the skills or to be able to get the skills to make it work. Some of these skills will relate to the idea itself so the area of passion, whatever that is, and some will relate to the unavoidable skills needed to run a business. This includes, for most businesses, like admin and accounting skills, marketing and promotional skills, probably staff management, some legal nous, and some computer skills. People sometimes say that you can have anything you want if only you try hard enough. I think there is some truth in this, but you need to be very honest with yourself about the fact that we don't all start from the same spot. 
If someone else has the same idea as you, but they have more skills, they might outcompete you. It might not be fair, but it's true nevertheless. If I love my idea, do these three questions really matter? Depending on what metric you use, about 75% of businesses fail in their first year. I suggest that if you get a very solid yes to the above three questions, you stand a much greater chance of being able to be in the surviving 25%. If any of your answers are a little on the weak side, you'll need to be able to compensate by being even stronger in your other answers. You may need to bounce between these questions many times, circling back to find the things that you are so interested in and that you do them in your free time for no money, only to again to discover that the market isn't there or that your motivation isn't strong enough or that you don't have the skills. This is going to seem harsh if you're hoping for a quick win. It might take you years to bounce between these questions. It might take many experiments in several different areas until you start to get what I think of as good feedback for something, by which I mean the right combination of positive experience from within yourself when you're working on the idea or the project, coupled with positive feedback from the world around you, which is often represented by sales and income. I'm 48. I've been bouncing around these questions all of my life. It's not so much a question of arriving with finality at an end point and having the answers all locked in. It feels much more circular to me, like constantly making progress, then circling back to the start from time to time and starting again. Life is long enough to make many full 180 degree turns. And here's a little hint, they're not actually 180 degree turns, they just feel like it at the time. Eventually, you look back and you can see that there was a straight path the whole time. If you're focused on the journey, so what it's like when you're working at your business, rather than the destination, the usual measure of success, then waiting around and spending time mulling over these questions is not a problem. You're winning from the day you decide to not get too caught up on the future. The workshop associated with this book includes a strong focus on uncovering your passions and getting help shaping them into business ideas. Next chapter. Do you start with big startup capital or with gradual growth? All new businesses start on a spectrum. Up one end is lots of startup capital and up the other end is none. You don't have to choose between the two. Rather, you can choose a balance of the two that suits your situation. But for the sake of clarity in this chapter, I'm going to talk about them as two binary options. Before discussing some pros and cons of the two approaches, let me be transparent about something. I've never had startup capital. I've always started with nothing or close to it and built up gradually. This is partly because I have a working class mentality, even though, arguably, my upbringing was decidedly middle class, which has meant that I'm just not comfortable or familiar with large levels of debt and pressure. Ignoring the question of whether or not anyone would have seen my various business ideas as worth investing in, of course. So I have a blind spot around the benefits of starting with a large amount of investment. You should take everything I say with a grain of salt, but especially this section. So, some benefits of low or no startup capital. Dot point. You get to test and prove your ideas over time. 
Most products or services evolve a lot, and especially at the beginning when you're still learning about your own offerings. If you're not heavily invested from the get-go, you can be very nimble and adapt to feedback quickly. If you've already committed a lot of advertising, manufacturing, or inertia to your offering being a particular way, it can be hard to rip it down and change it. Next dot point. You salivate over every sale. You focus desperately on how the client's going and whether the offering is working as you'd hoped. A lot of improvements and changes flow from this high level of focused attention. Next dot point. Failure by which I don't really mean failure, I mean the inevitable process of discovering that you want to change the way you're doing things because it didn't work perfectly the first time, is much harsher when it comes with a big price tag. It can be crippling, in fact, when something's not working as you'd hoped and all you can think about is the debt you've taken on. If you've still got your daggy day job and your new passion offering isn't going quite perfectly, it's much easier to rearrange what you're doing when there's little or no money on the line. Next dot point. You will be successful because what you're offering is excellent rather than because your advertising is excellent. A large startup budget can allow you to temporarily convince yourself that things are going well. But when that runs out, If you don't have a solid product, you won't have a solid customer base coming back for more and recommending it to their friends. Sadly, at this point, the only option for some is to take on more debt, to spend on more advertising, and the cycle gets a little addictive. If, on the other hand, you have no money, then you simply have to be great at what you do, and if it's going well, you know it's because it's a good product. Next dot point. The fear of having to get it right, first time and quickly, can be overwhelming. There are often surprisingly gentle ways to test out a project and make the launch process more gentle. Say you decide you want to offer the world a new and unique combination of massage and dance therapy. You begin by offering your partner a session. Then you work out how to shape it around a one-hour timeline. Then you offer it for free to friends and then to friends of friends, getting feedback and confidence all the while. Finally, after much editing and changing of your plan, you charge a few people, I don't know, $10 for a session in exchange for their feedback and so that you get a sense of what it's like to get money for this service. This emboldens you to keep gradually ramping up until you're charging full prices and are booked out however many days a week you decided would be your dream. At no stage through this process, that may have stretched out over many months or years, did you feel overly stressed or pressured because each step was just a gradual step up from the one that came before it. If you're carrying a large debt load, you don't have the luxury of being that slow and gentle on yourself. Uh, Now I'd like to list off some drawbacks of low startup capital. First dot point, you might not have the patience to wait out an organic growth cycle and might mistakenly think that the lack of financial flow represents a lack of viable product. Next dot point, sometimes it's good to throw money at a problem. This could be anything from a lawyer to help you navigate difficult legal landscapes to a consultant that specialises in your field and can point you in the right direction to a more expensive building that's a much better match for what you're wanting to do. 
Trying to do these things with inadequate funding can burn a lot of time and energy and may take you away from the part of the business you're good at. Next dot point, people, your customers, are illogical. They will often assume something is valuable because it's dressed up nicely and convincingly advertised. Subconsciously, we will often assume that a product or service being presented on a budget is a signal that it's no good and that even the people behind it lack confidence in it. It's an interesting quirk of human nature that people will rate an $80 bottle of wine more highly than an $8 bottle of wine when it's literally the same wine with different labels glued on for the sake of the social experiment. The saying that, quote, you get what you pay for, unquote, is not always true, but it's often true that our perceptions change according to how something is priced. There are exceptions, thankfully, and sometimes people are very good at seeing through an overhyped, glitzy offering. Next chapter. Do you launch half-cocked or fully formed? In a perfect world, you'd always wait until your offering is more or less perfect before launching it. But this is not a perfect world. For the most part, you don't have the time, the money, or the experience to get something perfect. For a lot of people, the pressure for something to be perfect means that the process of preparing it for market takes forever. Which raises an interesting philosophical question. Is it better to launch a half-formed offering or to wait until it's perfect, even if that means never getting it to market? Obviously, when it's phrased like that, the answer is to do your best with the resources you have, get the thing launched already, and keep developing the product while it's live. When exactly is the right time to launch something is a weird intuitive process that only you can answer. And while I haven't always got this balancing act right, by most people's standards, I'm way up the just get it out there end of the scale. My first podcast episodes sound an awful lot like an example of what not to do when creating a podcast. The audio quality is terrible, the structure is loose if we're being generous, and the target audience is all over the shop. But hey, I was having a blast making it, and no amount of waiting around trying to make it better would have helped, because I couldn't have known then what I know now. I got feedback, and gradually the quality got better. But it's a passion project that I mostly do out of excitement rather than obligation, and I think this came across even when other elements were lacking. So it's growing, and while I still don't know exactly where it's going, it's got a sizable following, which is great for something I do mostly out of love, for a few hours a month. My point is, if I'd waited for perfection, I would have never have launched. So there's a benefit to being a slacker, and just putting the thing out there. Obviously, if safety is involved, you need to be thorough. The same goes for legal issues and a bunch of other things. But for the most part, I'd encourage you to find a gentle way to get started, start early, and learn on the job. You'll get it wrong sometimes, and maybe even come to be embarrassed by your earlier offerings. But you'll recover. Next chapter. The most important advice I can give you ignore me. Now that you've read this book, here's the most important advice I can give you. 
feel free to disregard everything I've said. In fact, feel free to disregard every bit of self-help, business development or wealth creation advice you've ever been given. Unless it's right for you, of course. You and I, we're different people. We have different brains, different experiences and skills, different resources, different ways of going about things and different values. The things I've outlined in this book have helped me immensely, but what are the chances that all of it's going to suit you perfectly too? There is no chance. If you don't ignore at least some of the advice in this book and some of the advice from every other source you've been exposed to, then this is the only time I'll ever tell you that you're doing it wrong. Stop doing it my way. Do it your way. For the most part, you can trust your subconscious to sort the useful from the useless. If you don't agree with something someone said, or some technique or methodology, then you'll probably just forget it. In contrast, if something really inspires you and feels like the perfect answer for whatever problem you've got at the moment, then that beautiful mind of yours is probably already using your idle moments to work out how you can put the new thing in place already. The trick is when you're under the illusion that you should be doing something because it clearly worked so well for some other person some other time. And since that person had success, then for you to be successful, you must do the same thing. That kind of thinking is sort of logical, but it doesn't work like that. In fact, it's offensive when people like me stubbornly insist that we have the five essential steps to success or the truth about business or some other compelling definitive. It's mostly bullshit. We've just stumbled across something that worked for us, then we got lucky with it, then we got inspired to write a book or do a TV show or create a website about it. The horrible thing about the way the self-help sector works is that in order to sell our product to you, we have to make it sound like whatever we've got is the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Why else would you buy our thing? This is bad because it's selling a lie. But it's a tragedy when you go and try really hard to duplicate something we did and then beat yourself up if or when it doesn't work. You should be beating me up and my colleagues for giving you the impression that you should do what we say. We don't mean to put you in that bind, but we can't help it for the most part. So the single most important thing I want to say, and literally the one thing I think everyone should follow, is to ignore anything that doesn't feel right for you. Reduce me and people like me to just being interesting injections of information that you will draw upon as it suits you. If we ever give you the impression that you are failing us, then fire us. Rather than say at this point in time that you now need to proceed to buying the workshop associated with this book to realise your dreams, I'm going to say something different. Do whatever feels right for you. If you want to do the workshop, you already know that by now. If not, know that you're awesome, and however meandering the path might feel at the moment, it is nevertheless a path, and you're on it. It'll make sense in retrospect. Now go do your thing. Work with a wild and enthusiastic passion. Or take a nap. Whatever you choose, I hope it goes well. Curious Conversations About Sex is brought to you by Curious Creatures. We work with the world in the areas of sexuality, self-development, and relationships. 
We achieve this by doing the following five things. One, we offer pre-recorded workshops that you can watch at any time in the privacy of your home. Two, we run online live workshops. Three, we run in-person workshops, mostly in Australia. Four, I offer counselling, specialising in the things you hear me talking about on this podcast. And five, we make our famous consent cards, which you can view for free online or purchase pretty cheaply. You can find out about all of these things at curiouscreatures.biz. The best way to stay in touch regarding workshops is to sign up to our free monthly mailing list. And we also have a forum for you to interact with other listeners of this podcast and the Curious Creatures community about all sorts of things. Go to forum.curiouscreatures.biz. And lastly, if you can think of anyone else that might enjoy this episode, please share it with them. My name is Rog. You're awesome. This episode was mixed by Aman Dembla, and thanks for listening.